It's me, David Webb, and here's a highlight from today's show on Sirius XM Patriot. So let's put China in focus. And, and by the way, if you think they're not watching this election cycle closely, you haven't been paying attention on this show. And I think I'm willing to say clearly that the Patriot audience is paying attention. And yes, there is the military component of this, right? The signals, the flyovers, the missile launches. There's an economic component to this uh, as Taiwan has extended and added further ties with the, with the West and not with China, as well as concerns by uh, Japan and other nations over a strategic Im- ambiguity when it comes to addressing China. It's a complex situation. They're watching our elections to see what decisions we make that might give a Republican majority a chance to challenge them on a number of issues related to business, to the economy, things that would likely not be favorable to Xi Jinping, who faces his own uh, and his co- Congress of his own in an upcoming vote in the fall. Dr. Weifen Zong joins me again. Uh, always appreciate your input. Uh, he's a senior research fellow at Mercatus at uh, George Mason University. Dr. Zong, great to have you back. Thanks for having me back, David. So I'll, I'll put the question for your input, I, as I just laid out. The Chinese watching carefully, the Chinese Communist Party, to be specific, and their industries watching carefully what happens in this election. How do you see it? I think the, it's a general matter. Uh, Chinese policymakers, think tankers in Beijing, they have been watching very carefully uh, elections in the U.S. for decades uh, because for the simple reason that the U.S. is uh, remains the leader of the free world and it, even in economic or military power is still some uh, country, um, arguably the only country that China thinks it still needs to catch up on. And so that in, in that sense, it, elections in the U.S. is much more important to Beijing than, say, uh, any other election, say, in Europe or in the U.K. So today, is there something different? And different in this sense. The instability here, the unwillingness in some ways, while there was a, a law passed by Congress on business with China that we've discussed before, uh, there there is instability culturally, politically, and that more often benefits China. I, I, I looked into the lobbying activities by China uh, prior to this interview, and from sources I've spoken into D.C., they've upped their efforts because no matter who's in power, they're ready to make the play. They they employ as a nation uh, the some say the largest, at least in the top three of amount of lobbyists in Washington, not just to go to administrations in Congress, but to agencies and other influential organizations. Well, I think uh, it's always important, at least in Beijing's eye, to uh, exert influence as much as they can in this town. Uh, it's a matter, you know, whether 
the White House is more or less friendly towards China, it, it always pays off for Beijing to work on its influence in Washington. But uh, I, I, I do agree with you that even in, in terms of midterm elections, David, it still has uh, huge consequences in uh, economic policies, for example, in the next two years. And China is reasonably watching it closely. Uh, it's intuitive because if the United States uh, made policies that make the U.S. economy less competitive, that would be to the advantage of the Chinese, uh, 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 you know, competition with the, uh, from China's perspective, right? So we we have seen in the last two years certain protectionist policies of, uh, you know, make stuff at home kind of initiatives that I, I suspect Beijing would be gladly watching because this is not going to work and this has cost U.S. payers, uh, U.S. taxpayers uh, money, and it's not going to make the U.S. economy more dynamic. So. What, when you look at, again, I want to keep looking at this from the Chinese perspective, with the numerous issues and some of which I mentioned, what do you think is more likely, if you can discern that at this point, when it comes to what Xi Jinping uh, faces with his upcoming uh, vote? And in in the midst of that, there's even a COVID component. I, I read a story earlier of, uh, 782 or so infections of COVID that results in an entire shutdown uh, in China within the last 24 or 36 hours. I mean, it, is there something that we're not paying attention to here? Uh, I think what people need to realize more is the fact that when the uh, this is it showcase how strong Xi Jinping's hold of power still is in China. Uh, from the simple fact that COVID lockdown or zero COVID, however you call it, the policy is obviously not working. But everybody else in China is still following that very closely, simply because nobody wants to go up against uh, President Xi in China. And that's even more obvious if you look at the, um, uh, you know, presumably the number two most powerful person uh, in Beijing, which is the Premier Li Keqiang. But if you look at him, and he, he's not on board with the COVID, zero COVID lockdown policy, but he basically has no say in terms of how the, uh, which direction the country is going. So I think one thing that's very interesting to watch in the next two months as they uh, prepare for the party congress is how much voice do we, are we going to hear from people in Beijing who are more pragmatic or more practical I suspect that it's not going to have a lot of uh, voice, but no matter how much they gain, I think it will have a huge consequence in the direction China is going in the next five years. Because um, if if it remains to be a one-man show in China, uh, I think the Chinese economy is going to be less and less dynamic. And we'll see more and more, and more of these crazy policies that cl- clearly don't make sense to anyone else but uh, you know people in power in Beijing. How concerned should Taiwan be at this moment? Not that they haven't been in the past and currently are concerned, but how concerned should they be, especially the idea of maybe more uh, radical actions being taken by Xi? That's, uh, I think it depends on if you're thinking about how concerned Taiwan should that be uh, for whether China would, about whether China would invade Taiwan. I think that's, a, you know, multi-billion dollar question that everybody's asking. It's hard to put a timeline on. I think uh, even U.S. military leaders, uh, what they would do is to say, in terms of military capacity, whether mainland China is ready 
And it seems that mainland China might be ready, you know, within the next six, eight years or so. Uh, but an- another question I pay more attention to is in case of an invasion, is the Taiwanese economy or is the U.S. and its allies ready in the sense of being more resilient against Chinese invasion? Uh, I think that's a question uh, more concerning to me. If you, uh, the Mercator Center, my, co- my colleague and I just put out a new report this week that basically highlights two, in our eye, huge risks to the Taiwanese economy if China invades Taiwan. The container shipments certainly one in, through Taiwan Strait, South China Sea, and East China Sea, uh, and eventually it would affect the United States. But another aspect more concerning is the submarine cable uh, connecting Taiwan, the network that connects Taiwan to the global economy. Taiwan is the global leader in manufacturing of uh, semiconductor chips, and that relies heavily on the Internet. But uh, the submarine cable um, connections, uh, the network itself is not very secure. They come to shore in buildings that look just like any other random warehouse, and I think the U.S. and its allies has not paid enough in attention in this kind of key technology infrastructure. And all of them would be vulnerable in the kinetic conflict with the mainland. Let's go to another issue. And this one uh, just being newly reported as of yesterday. Uh, the U.N. citing China for, quote, serious human rights violations in its treatment of the Uyghur Muslims. Uh, I have no secret i've been a skeptic of any action taken uh, criticism or otherwise because the fact is they have not changed their policies towards the uyghurs and policies and or actions have not changed so while it's important to hear that there's this uh report nothing seems to change yeah, I think not, that's absolutely true. And uh, still, with the report, it's better. The world is better than without the report. Or with, in a world where the UN Human Rights Council is, uh, is completely siding with China. But I think to actually have some make a difference or make some change, it, it does take time. If we look at U.S. policy on that front, um, last year we had this new uh, Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Prevention Act, and that law just became. Uh, 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 implemented in June, just uh, less than two months ago. And so I think in terms of the private sector, a lot of U.S. importers, U.S. companies, they are still trying to figure out whether U.S. policymakers are really serious in implementing the law. Uh, and in that case, it would require that all the importers provide clear documentation of where the inputs deep down in the supply chain, where are they from, have they employed forced labor. And so I think uh, once it's clear to the industry that policymakers are serious in implementing the law, I think it would affect the behavior of American companies doing business in China, and that hopefully in the long run would put a little bit more pressure on Beijing. But things like this, it it, it does take time, take a long time, uh, simply because a lot of that, the tragedy, uh, is very sad to see what's happening in Xinjiang. But a lot of it is really comes down to the power of Beijing or the Chinese regime. And there's things that the U.S. can do on that front. It's kind of limited. Yeah. I mean, decoupling from China is complex. Uh, exit question on decoupling and what we're just talking about. 
uh, it's not as if the U.S. is solely dependent on China. And to a great degree, China isn't solely dependent on the U.S., whether it's buying our debt, manufacturing and otherwise. If companies are willing and willing may include losses and again, that process of decoupling uh, you know, disengaging in some ways with China, moving manufacturing and other elements to other countries takes time. Do you see that as a path that's still underway? Is it, it where is it? I hope it's not underway. I think still many people in this town are still thinking in the direction of potentially decoupling from China. I think that's dangerous, um, not only. Um, more broadly, but very specifically to the technology leaders has enjoyed because a new policy that just was announced today was uh, the U.S. is going to restrict exports of high-end semiconductor chip sales to China. We're talking about chips or equipments made by companies like NVIDIA uh, producing hardware that would facilitate AI algorithm or machine learning research. And But we have to recognize that if you restrict sales to China, very broadly speaking, uh, that's going to have a huge impact on revenues of tech companies. And we have to recognize that those revenues is actually what goes into uh, pay for the cost of R&D, research and development for our next generation technology leadership. And so I think a broad, very broad brush uh, decoupling agenda would hurt the U.S. competitiveness uh, to an, a level that's unimaginable to people who are just talking about it. So I, I think I, I see the danger there. I, I certainly do hope that uh, this uh, uh, school of thought, so to speak, uh, would not take traction in the next few years. But then in that case, how do you exert a, a economic leverage against China? Look, I understand, especially when you look at, say, semiconductors and technology capacity has to increase in other areas. That's one of the concerns in Taiwan, where millions of uh, square feet of industrial space in the last few years has increased during the Trump years. There was a need to increase power supply, power grid in Taiwan, Vietnam and others, and then, you know, bringing bringing things uh, in the tech, bringing the technology space out of China. That takes years. But economic leverage requires that you have some decoupling, doesn't it? Well, I think, I, I think uh, yeah, I, I think you're right in, in principle. I wouldn't call that decoupling because uh, uh, let's continue on with the semiconductor chip example. For, uh, the, so the export ban we are talking about, just we saw today, is the uh, ban of all the exports of certain types of chips to anywhere in China, right? But if you think about bad actors in China, if they really wanted those chips, they can still buy it indirectly, perhaps through a third country. So if you have a policy like this, you are cutting off revenue stream of U.S. tech companies, but you are not really banning those bad actors from accessing those technologies. So I think in terms of this kind of economic policy, uh, when it's more targeted, it will be more effective. When it's more broad brush, it tends to be less effective, but it also hurts ourselves more. And so it, you, you, you may say that, you know, if you sanction a list of 20, 30 also uh, bad actors in China so that no U.S. tech companies can do business with them, that's a very targeted policy, but it would not hurt the revenue stream of U.S. 
uh, tech companies as much as uh, this kind of broadband. So you might call that still a decoupling in some form, uh, in some form, minor decoupling or slightly decoupling. I think that's all fine terminologies, but I think we we do have to recognize the scope of policy is a very important uh, parameter to to be very careful about. Dr. Wei Zong, Senior Research Fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Always a pleasure, Dr. Zong. Thank you. Thank you for having me, David. You can join me live on The David Webb Show, Monday to Friday, 9 to noon East, on Sirius XM Patriot 125.